For our second reading this morning, I've chosen one of my favorites by the author Annie Dillard. This is an excerpt from her novel, Holy the Firm. She writes, There is one church here, so I go to it. On Sunday mornings, I quit the house and wander down the hill to the white-framed church in the firs. On a big Sunday, there might be 20 of us there. Often, I am the only person under 60 and feel as though I'm on an archaeological tour of Soviet Russia. (laughs) The members are of mixed denominations. The minister is a Congregationalist and wears a white shirt. The man knows God. Once in the middle of a long pastoral prayer of intercession for the whole world, for the gifts of wisdom to its leaders, for hope and mercy to the grieving and pained, succor to the oppressed and God's grace to all, in the middle of this he stopped and burst out, Lord, we bring you these same petitions every week. (laughs) After a shocked pause, he continued reading the prayer. Because of this, I like him very much. Good morning, he says, after the first hymn and invocation, startling me witless every time, and we all shout back, good morning. The church women all bring flowers for the altar. They haul in arrangements as big as hedges of wayside herbs in season and flowers from their gardens huge bunches of foliages, of foliage and blossoms as tall as I am in vases the, sizes, the size of tubs. And the altar still looks empty, irredeemably linoleum and beige. We had a wretched singer once, a guest from a Canadian congregation, a hulking blonde girl with chopped hair and big shoulders who wore tinted spectacles and a long lacy dress and sang, grinning to faltering accompaniment, an entirely secular song about mountains. Nothing could have been more apparent than that God loved this girl. Nothing could more surely convince me of God's unending mercy than the continued existence on earth of the church. A few years ago, when I returned to the church of my childhood for one of those two grandmothers' funerals, I was surprised at how small the building felt. I hadn't stepped foot in that little Presbyterian church in Deer Lodge, Montana, for a couple of decades at that point. There had just been nothing that had taken me back there. My parents had moved from that small town. But there we were, gathered, at the Presbyterian Church in Deer Lodge, Montana, for my grandmother's funeral. And as a child, I remember it being such a grand building. It was huge. You would walk in the back doors, and it had red carpeting, sort of a little more crimson than the carpeting that we have. And it would have this carpeting that would go up the aisle. And as a small child, the the pews had very high ends, and so it was kind of like walking through this forest to get to the front. 
And of course, as a child, it was a long, long ways to the front. And you really only wanted to go up there if you had the hand of an adult. It was very far away and seemed um, very important up there. But we kids, each Sunday, were happy to clamor forward and to sit on the steps as the minister told us a story. We felt comfortable in that church because our grandparents had been there and our parents were there. Our friends from school were there as well. This church that had old, dark wooden pews and kind of big beams on the ceilings, a dark, almost Germanic-looking roof. Somehow they had gotten the stained glass windows from some church in Europe that had been bombed during the war. And so when this grand building was built in my hometown shortly after World War II, some of those windows were brought over and put into it. So I grew up with stained glass angels coming clear down the side, each one with a different look on its face and a different weapon of choice. (laughs) This was pretty cool for a kid, you know. These angels, these were not dry your tears angels. These were not comfort you in the middle of the night angels. If you called on one of these angels, you knew that angel was going to show up and it was going to have some power. The front of the church had this mysterious, at least to a child, stained glass window as well. It showed Jesus looking very pastoral in his his white gown and then his red robe over it. And he, he was looking very peaceful up there. But on either side were these two very mysterious figures. And uh, later I learned that it was Moses and Elijah on either side of Jesus. And then there were more angels, but these angels were kind of kneeling down. And, and everything in the church kind of pointed toward this pastoral figure, this kind, brotherly Jesus figure. And that was pretty much the theology of that place, too. We were certainly Christian. We didn't know how to be anything other than Christian. But the theology of that place... When I look back on it now, was pretty much as liberal as you'd find here or in any ta- any other church here in, in Concord. We didn't believe that folks who had never heard of Jesus were going to hell. We believed that you read the Gospels and you listened to the Beatitudes and you said the prayers. And that was all to make you live in a way that was kinder and more just a way that would knit you in with your neighbors and with your friends. It was the example of Jesus much more than him as a Christ-like figure that we were following. And so I grew up in this congregation where the overwhelming feeling, at least as a child and then as a teenager, was that I was loved. I was at home in that space. I was given little jobs to do in that space. Our family ushered once a month, so I would hand out the bulletins, and we got to take up the collection when that time came. And at Christmas time, of course, all of us five Dana kids had some role in the Christmas pageant. We all started out as the baby Jesus, (laughs) but one quickly outgrew that role. And so you had to move on, and I think, I think the order, you started, you were an angel, and then you might move up to a shepherd, especially if, had, if you had your own bathrobe to bring. <laughs> and then there were some bigger parts. You might actually be elevated to wise man, or uh, head angel, or chief shepherd. And then, of course, 
once you were teenagers, big gangly teenagers still wearing their tennis shoes, playing Joseph, shy young women playing Mary, holding somebody else's baby on Christmas Eve. This sense of love and embrace, this sense of place, this sense of belonging is part of the reason that my family went to church. Because in my family, there was no question about whether we would go to church. It was simply one of the things you did. Oftentimes, there was a great big row at home on Sunday morning as you got five kids and two adults and a grandma dressed and in the car and ready to go somewhere to be to Sunday school and then to church. We often would fight with each other in the car on the way to church and, yes, on the way home from church. (laughs) But there was never a question about whether we were going to church or not. It was just how we would get there and in what shape we would leave. When I think back on it, my parents really needed that church to help raise five kids. It needed adults who could firmly but kindly tell us to stop running around the church. It needed adults who could see us as their own kids, see us as children who were just connected to them as a congregation. I remember Sunday school teachers who would sit with us on the floor and read us Bible stories. I remember all of the little songs that we would sing in Sunday school. Many of them you all probably know as well in one version or another, whether you were raised Jewish or Christian or Unitarian Universalist. My family needed that place. It needed that place of belonging. It needed that place when there were hard times on that ranch, when there was no money to go around. I know that my parents more than once went to the minister of that church for a little bit of help. I remember terrible, terrible arguments deep into the night in our home over where money was going to come from and how the taxes were going to be paid and who would have to get a job outside of the ranch to make ends meet. Terrible arguments in which I know my own parents went to their pastor to help heal their own relationship, help put it back together, because they needed somebody to help make a little bit of sense of this. They needed a group of people who understood what it was to struggle as well as to be joyous. So there was no mystery why we went to that church. We needed it. We needed it Sunday after Sunday. And I found out more and more as a child and then a teenager that I needed it too. One of the things that we were allowed to do as kids during the church service was we were allowed to do our homework. So this was really handy. You know, you had, you had this kind of boring hour-long thing, and you had to sit still, and you had to be quiet, and you couldn't kick your brother. And, uh, but at least you could do your homework. And so there we would show up in church. We'd have our math or our social studies or our history questions. And I was a very good student, and my brothers were pretty good students. But we'd be sitting there, and you could, you could do your homework, especially during the sermon. Because it, it was interminable. It, it just went on and on. And, it, you know, who knew what he was talking about up there? 
He just, he seemed to make one point, and then there was another point, and then there was something that referred back to the scripture, and he would just drone on and on and on. And so it was a good chance to get some, to diagram some sentences or to figure out some math problems. And so we sat there in the pew, and we did our homework. And I remember distinctly the Sunday that I was, I don't know what homework I was doing, but I was sitting there dutifully doing my homework. And I actually realized that the minister was saying something interesting. That he'd sort of fallen on a topic that I maybe had some tiny little bit of interest in. And I remember sort of looking up at him, because he was up there in the pulpit, and he was going on and on and on in his robe. And I realized that he was talking about something that I was actually interested in. And so I started to listen to him. And what I realized was his sermons hadn't changed a bit. It's that I was becoming interested in more adult conversation and in more adult things. And so what I started doing more and more after that particular Sunday was I started paying attention more and more to the sermons. It was still a little hit or miss. You couldn't always be guaranteed that he was going to connect with something that you were interested as well. But slowly I realized that I wasn't just a kid in this church, that it was my church too. And more and more I started to go because I realized that there were things that were interesting there for me as well. And this church in many ways saved my life, and I'm not exaggerating. Deer Lodge, Montana is a pretty isolating place to grow up. There's not much opportunity there. There's not much liberal thinking there. And so when high school got hard, when friends became fair-weather friends, when taunting and bullying happened, I knew that there were places in my life that I could go where I would be loved and I would be accepted and that people would be interested in me. And that little church, I tell you, week after week, saved a pretty, pretty desperate teenager at times. To have youth group to go to, to know that there were going to be other kids there who would at least tolerate me, if not be nice to me. To know that there were adults, not my parents and not my grandparents, who would do things for me and who would take care of me. Played a huge role in getting me through high school, getting me through those turbulent teen years, and in setting me up for the next chapter in my life. I come from a family where higher education is not particularly valued. I am still the only person in my family ever to go to college. And so when you come from a family that is working class, that works on the land, that has ties to the military, that votes very conservatively, you don't really know how to go to college. You don't even really know what it is. It's this thing that some people have talked about and you've heard about it. Maybe a high school teacher, maybe somebody you knew went to college. But it's not something that is a real thing. It's not something you look forward to or you think about, and it's certainly not something that you plan for. At least I didn't. And so what I found was that this church had enough people in it, a pastor in particular, a man named Will Mason, 
and a youth group leader named Vicki Wida, who saw in me potential before I could see it in myself. And the gift that they gave to me was they just started talking about college. They just talked to me like they assumed I was going. Well, I wasn't going to college. There was no money to go to college. I didn't know how you went to college. Where would you even start? And rather than saying, do you think you'd like to go to college, they just set up a couple college visits for me and drove me there themselves. Here's this farm kid. I walk into the admissions office at Montana State University. My God, I've never seen an institution this big in my life. And here I am with someone from my church who has seen in me something they think that I would benefit from and then made it happen. I will be eternally grateful for those eyes, those people who could see things that even my parents and my own grandparents could not, for that church community who could, in its own mysterious way, determine not only what was good for me, but what was good for my brothers, because that was different. My brother Mark went into the Air Force and thrived there. From that experience, he's become a police officer and is a sergeant in Tucson, Arizona. My next two younger brothers were really good mechanically. They didn't need to go to college. They needed to know how to fix trucks and tractors. And they're both successful mechanics to this day. So that church could see in each of us what we needed and could help us move toward that. And so that was part of the reason that I just became more and more involved in it. I went to a Presbyterian church when I went to Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, and that was another great experience. Here was a brand new congregation that saw me as somebody who had some potential and who had some skills and never questioned whether I was supposed to be there or not. There weren't too many college kids in that church. But there it was, just open, just a bunch of people doing what they did every Sunday, but making space for me. In that college church, I wound up going on a fact-finding mission to Nicaragua during the Contra Sandinista War. It was the first time I'd ever been out of the country. Never been out of the United States. And where do I wind up? Guatemala, Costa Rica, Nicaragua. Changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. And that it was led by a minister in that church gave me the courage to explore that and to open up a lifelong love of not only Latin America, but of travel, and most especially of seeing other people in the places where they live, and to see how their life is not very different from mine, even though they may have less than I do, they may speak differently than I do, they may worship or they may have cultural things that are different from the way I worship or my own culture. It was in that college church that I was ordained for the first time. Presbyterians ordain their elders. And there I was, probably a 19-year-old kid, and they were ordaining a group of elders. I didn't really think of myself as an elder, and I was probably up there with people in their 60s and 70s who were also being ordained elders. But that first ordination, that first stamp of a seal by a church, 
that said, yes, we see you as a leader, we trust you to care for us, and we trust you to lead, is one of the very first things that was said to me that awoken, awakened that call to ministry, that idea that church would be an important place for me and that I might actually be able to lead it, got reawakened there. Not by me, maybe by God, but certainly through other people. Because it's always through other people that we can see ourselves, that we can see what is next for us in life, that we can see where we have gone wrong, where we have failed, and how we might do better. It is always through other people who see in us things that we might not be able to see ourselves. And so if you show up to church next week, you're going to get to hear the next chapter of how I moved very naturally and very gratefully from Presbyterianism to Unitarian Universalism. Because what I was seeking was something larger, larger than that cattle ranch in Montana, larger than that small hometown of Deer Lodge, something larger even than that little Presbyterian church or that slightly bigger Presbyterian church of my college town. I was seeking a theology that fit me better, that was more expansive, that did not dismiss my past, but would allow me to go into a complex world and to make meaning there. So that's what you'll get to hear when you come to church next Sunday. Because we all come from some place. Some of us were raised Unitarian Universalist. Some of us were raised Jewish or were raised Christian. Some of us might have been raised Hindu or Buddhist. Some of us might have been raised in no religion at all. Each of us comes from some place. Each of us, our whole life long, has spiritual needs, spiritual appetites, And if we're lucky, our whole life long, we might be surrounded by people who can see us and who can see what we need even better than we might see ourselves. So be it. Amen.